if we're listening and we're understanding and we're trying to solve problems, leaders don't solve problems in isolation. Leaders solve problems when they listen to the individuals that have the feedback that can move the needle forward because we have to recognize, hey, we don't have the answers. We need to go to the source and see what is it that you want because needs have changed too. Welcome everyone to the Culture by Design podcast. I'm Tim Clark and I have with me today, Brandon Springle. And uh, Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Let me share a little bit about Brandon's background. And it's really quite extraordinary. He was born and raised in Greenville, South Carolina. Went to the University of South Carolina and earned a bachelor's degree in sport and entertainment management with a focus in business administration. And then after that, he went to work for Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina in the Provider Relations Department. And during that period of time, he decided to go back to school and get a master's degree in human resource management from the University of South Carolina, which he did in 2008. And the next year, he started his human resources journey with General Information Services, GIS, near Columbia. And then, let me fast forward, he then served as a multi-site corporate HR manager with responsibility for over 700 associates between Dallas and, do you say, is it Chapin? Chapin, South Carolina. Chapin, see? Chapin, South Carolina. And then he, uh, let's see, what else is interesting here? He transitioned to Shaw Industries in February of 2014. He's worked at Shaw Facility in Columbia, South Carolina for four years, and then he was promoted to Corporate HR Compliance Manager. He currently serves as an HR Director at Shaw Industries, supporting manufacturing operations, hard surface, automation, reliability, and enterprise excellence. In addition, he serves as co-leader for the Spectrum, Black and Multicultural ARG, and a lot of other things. Brandon. Thank you so much for spending some time. I'm so grateful. Let me ask you a question. How did you get into HR? Was that accidental? Was that intentional? How did that happen? Well, I initially started out with a focus in sports and entertainment, as you know, and I always really had a vision to be a talent advocate, right? But more so in the sports arena. So I saw myself as being a talent agent. I went through the process and looked at the job market and it wasn't what I expected. I had some really good experiences, but I remembered an HR class I took in undergraduate and I was thinking, hey, there's talent all over the map Mm. and I can go to different places and help people and really just help them navigate their career paths and look for a brighter future for them. And so I pursued that master's degree and that's really how I got there. But the other part that's really critical, I remember a memory and It was a situation with my father in the company he was working for. And there was a situation towards the end of his career where there was a decision point that happened. And for me, that was challenging because I was like, who was responsible or who was involved with that decision? Because it was a, you know, it was a difficult time for our family, but I learned a lot. And I said, you know, one day I want to be on the side of the table that helps make the right type of decisions for people. Hmm. And that I think was the initial seed. But from there, I just came back around full circle after exploring sports and entertainment and seeing that I could advocate for talent in a different way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me back you up a little bit more. So what kind of a kid were you growing up? 
Did you have an orientation for people? Were you a social person? Were you involved in sports? Tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, just backing up a little. I was a little bit introverted. I mean, the interesting part about me is I grew up in a library, basically. So I had a strong love for books. My mother was a librarian. So kind of say to myself, I did love sports, love basketball, still do. But I was social when I needed to be. Naturally, I'm introverted. But I am, I guess, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFJ, mm. which means if I feel comfortable, <laughs> you know, I can turn into more of an extroverted personality type. So I was pretty friendly. I had a few friends, kept a tight circle, but I would say I was friendly. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Yeah. But a pretty natural orientation for people. Absolutely. Is that fair? Yeah, that would be fair to say. Okay. So now you've, for the last little while now, you're in this new role as, well, it's not new anymore, but you're director of HR at Shaw, mm-hmm. and you have responsibility for manufacturing operations. Help us understand the context for manufacturing operations. What kind of plants are we talking about? What's going on? What are people doing? Sure. So basically, they're creating products for consumers. For my specific area of focus is you know, luxury vinyl tile and what we call SPC products. And that goes into homes. And essentially, Shaw creates anything that can cover a floor, essentially, or even we do turf and other things as well. But it's essentially a manufacturing environment and our distribution. But my focus is more so on that manufacturing side, production-oriented work, essentially. Mm. And we've talked about this before. We both have experience in production. Are these production lines? So can you give us a vision of what one of these looks like? Sure. Yeah, they're production lines. I mean, they have different pieces. Some have presses, some have rollers, but it's essentially moving the process through. As you know, there's a lot of automation that comes into play with equipment and machinery as we move towards Industry 4.0. So that's a newer part that we're exploring, we're looking at. So that's essentially what it is. It is like a production line, having varying numbers of people depending on the automated component of that. Sure, sure. Okay, so I want the listeners to get a feel for this. So we have a manufacturing line. We have equipment, we have machinery, we have people posted in their jobs, mm-hmm. and we go from stage to stage to stage, and we produce the product. Right. Let's bring culture into the conversation. How important is culture? Why is culture important in this context? Sometimes people look at a manufacturing operations, right, Brandon, if they're not experienced or they don't know too much about it, and they think, well, you just do your job. So you're in production or you're in maintenance and here's your job and you just do it and we're producing product and that's it. And then you pass it to the next person and the next stage and here we go. So what does culture have to do with any of this? So let's bring that into the conversation a little bit. Well, as it relates to culture, that to me, if you look at it and you assess it and you understand the voice of the people that work within the company that you work in, it can essentially be a competitive advantage if you leverage it accurately and you really understand because to put people in the best position where they can be successful, it really is predicated by the culture that you set up, the culture that you essentially design. Because if you just expect things to come as normal and people just to show up and be happy and do the job, we're in the midst of the great resignation, great awakening. A lot of people are thinking about their options and opportunities. And I guess the good part about that is so many have woken up as far as leaders to say, hey, we have to be very intentional about what we're doing and making sure that we create an environment where people want to be. Mm -hmm. 
a paycheck essentially is not enough to retain and sustain talent in the workplace. Mm -hmm. What would be an example of, well, because you've worked across different plants and different manufacturing units, what would be an example of a pattern of culture that is good, productive, versus one that's not in that context, in that setting? I would say a culture where the voice of the employee is clearly heard. And Mm -hmm. one thing I would offer is I think surveying, as long as you have trust and there's a strong sense of psychological safety can be very powerful. As you look at a workplace that's becoming more and more digitized, it becomes more difficult to get to people directly and get the full breadth of their feedback. So making sure you have a different strategy depending upon how you want to connect to people. So that means you may do it digitally with a census type survey, or you may want to do live surveying and pull in some focus groups on a specific issue. But the key is that connectivity. You got to find a way to connect. Mm -hmm. Do you see a change maybe since the pandemic in the expectations of the new employees that are coming in? Is there a migration of expectations? For example, you said they want a voice. And it seems to me that in many ways, that may be the central question that employees are asking when they're considering a job. Does a voice come with that job? That's what I want to know. Does a voice come with that? So what kind of expectations are you seeing, Brandon, as you're onboarding new employees? Do you see changes from the pandemic? I'd really be interested in a perspective on that. So it kind of goes back to my experience with looking at sports and entertainment. I think you really have to set the stage. Like if you're wanting to recruit, say, the t- I love basketball. So if you want to recruit like the top level talent and they're a free agent, yeah. you got to roll out the carpet. So I think the voice has to come with it. That should be part of the expectation because bringing in unique voices, diverse voices, they can shed light on things that maybe we hadn't seen before. So that's absolutely In my view, it should be an expectation. Just going into that two-way street, even when you have the conversation, you somewhat feel like you're being interviewed as well. More questions are being asked. (laughs) What type of programs do you offer? What's your diversity and inclusion journey look like? I mean, you're getting questions like that essentially at all levels. Now, you know, employees are a lot more engaged for sure. Are they asking tougher questions, more pointed questions? They're changing that interviewing experience. So what are you seeing there? Well, you see, when you have a really good interview, there are more questions being asked, things that you hadn't really seen in the past. But the other thing that kind of happens is unique. It used to be the reputation of employers to do the ghosting, but now it seems like prospective employees might ghost you a little bit. So that part has been interesting too, just in the psychology recruiter thinking about, I have this set up and then somebody's not showing up because they have so many other opportunities to consider. So how you facilitate and set the interview up from the very beginning you have to take another look at as well, just to make sure you're getting people in and getting them excited, even just for the interview. Mm -hmm. So now we find that we're thinking about retention, 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 right? That's right. I mean, it's the employee life cycle from bringing them into the organization all the way through, but it never stops. Retention, retention, retention. Are you doing anything different? Let's just take the last two years since the pandemic began. What are you doing differently? What's changing? I think, the, and this is an overall shift, I think, for the human resources function, I would say, but looking at people analytics and drawing stories and getting some insights from data. So 
data has become more and more important in trying to drive the right actions. We used to track for what metrics should we apply to employee engagement, but we have shifted that to trying to craft and cultivate an experience. And data drives the type of experience that we want to design. And you can tangibly show any type of leader, hey, this is what the data is showing. This is what we should pursue. And it's very clear. It's hard to dispute factual, hard data mm-hmm. from anybody. I can go with the gut instinct and think, hey, I feel like this is the right way to go, but the data should reinforce that auction. Give us an example, Brandon, of the kind of data you look at and that you use and that you try to glean insights from. What do you rely on? Sure. I mean, if you want to look at turnover time frame, so if you want to look, hey, at what point does the experience start to shift? Is it in the first 30? Is it in the first 60? Is it in 90? I mean, if you get a person to a certain time frame, is that retention period a little bit longer? So the turnover is always something you're going to look at. Mm-hmm. You can break it down to team-specific, department-specific, and really have a pretty good picture of what might be happening and what you need to focus on. Is there a training opportunity for somebody? So many scenarios and outcomes can come from just looking at the right data fields, but those are just a few that I would look at. Mm-hmm. Another thing you have is survey data, right? Plug survey data and look at the type of questions that are being asked. Why do you work here? When you're trying to figure out how to help people belong, you want to get those insights to understand what is the sense of saying about why a person would want to be in a place? And then how do you capitalize on those insights to work towards driving the true and transparent and very authentic story that can help them really see the value in being part of the organization as much as we value the employee that is a part of the organization. So it's that Mm -hmm. two-way again. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great insight. Let's go back to the shop floor for a minute. Mm -hmm. In a production environment, we have a hierarchy. Right. We've got production personnel. We've got maintenance people. And then we have our management hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so in a plant, you've got how many layers of management do you have typically? So you have usually supervisor, manager. Sometimes you have a production manager as well. Then you have that plant manager. So about three or four layers. Three or four. Okay. Yep. So here we are. We're in the context of a hierarchy. We can't just eliminate the hierarchy. That's very important as we organize the work, division of labor, roles and responsibilities, role clarity, all of those things. But in the context of hierarchy, how do you create cultural flatness so that people feel more connected, more of a sense of belonging, more included? How do you do that? How do you neutralize the bad parts, right? The negative aspects of the hierarchy. What What have you learned about that, Brandon, to create cultural flatness? I think you have to meet people essentially where they are. It starts there and doing things like skip level meetings, getting that feedback in, and then backing out of the way and empowering people to do that job autonomously once they are at that space where they're ready to do so. So having really a, a solid training program is the first step, bringing people in, welcoming environment, solid training program. And then making sure you're collecting their feedback and supporting them along the way. Earlier, we talked about the biggest shift since the pandemic. And I think it's been that awareness of a need for support. And so when you kind of come down and meet a person where they are, that naturally flattens the hierarchy and, and let them work 
on what they need to work on and what they really enjoy doing without getting in their way, essentially, mm -hmm. as a leader. Leaders mm -hmm. sometimes need to step out of the way, set the expectation and step out of the way and let people move forward with what you have equipped them to do efficiently, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember exactly where we were, but I heard you tell a story or relate an experience about it may have been a new employee and the employee mistook you for someone in security. Yeah. Remember that? I do. Would you share that experience with us? Sure. Yeah. So when I um started working, I had a situation where I was new. And at the time I was relatively young and had an individual that was working for me that, you know, a little bit senior to me. And he was just taking me on a tour and I was going around meeting people. And as soon as I walked up front, it was like, hey, you must not be in charge. Maybe, I don't know if it was the age. I don't know really what it was that led to it. But they, the person immediately started to address the person that was a part of my team as though that person was my leader. And that just was one of those situations where you say maybe some unconscious bias played into that or some other elements. But it was one of those things that really kind of woke me up and connected me that, hey, I needed to focus on the fact that treat people with respect and dignity. Don't necessarily assume a person's in a certain position or a certain role and you need to treat them differently because of where they sit. And I really carried that with me. And it doesn't matter if somebody is mopping floors or, you know, in the C-suite, they all deserve to be respected. And that really was a resonating experience with me. And it was something my father actually showed me too. I mean, he was one of the first, you know, African-Americans essentially to really be in a professional position in the 80s. I mean, so that was another strong example for me. So I watched his professional career and how he treated everybody and talked to people. So just seeing how people make assumptions in the world, it can be a little bit difficult, but we find a way to navigate through and essentially lead with love is the way that I try to do it. I didn't take offense to it. I wasn't upset. I did make the correction just for understanding and clarity's sake, but yeah. that essentially was the experience in a nutshell. So Brandon, maybe you can provide a little advice to everybody else, but sure. how do you extend grace to others when you've been perhaps the object of a negative stereotype or bias or prejudice or something of that nature and you're on the receiving end of that? How do you do that? What did your father teach you about this? Because we can talk about it, but this is something that we then experience in the course of interaction, right? We have real interactions and people make mistakes, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a challenging question for me. I just look at a person as a human being, right? And we're all flawed in some way. But ultimately, the thing I focus on is where might they have gotten that idea in their mind? You know, I think it's of a stereotype or an unconscious bias as an idea that somebody had that just has ruminated in their mind over time. And sometimes they may not really know. So the first thing I try to do is build relationships with people that I connect to, even if it's a quick connection, just so we can have an honest conversation. And if there's something that comes up to me that appears to be stereotypical or offensive based on any distinguishable characteristic, I just like to dive into that conversation a little bit deeper and try to get some understanding without accusing. I always want to assume positive intent, mm -hmm. even when it doesn't per se look positive. And that's really the best way I can navigate it. Because if I get triggered, then my behavior may not be 
what it needs to be. And it may be an escalation of an issue. But if I can control my response to a degree, seek to understand and seek to educate if there's a teachable moment, then I think we end up with a much better outcome in that situation. Mm -hmm. So you go right after connection early. I do. Okay. Build rapport, build connection. We've got to find some common ground. We've got to find a way to connect. And then we have some basis, some foundation for a conversation. But you also seem to be rather direct and rather explicit in digging into those issues. Is that fair? I would say it's fair, but another part of my personality is I do watch. I don't always jump into every relationship head on, but when I do get into a conversation where it can even get to a point like that, there's likely already a relationship because I would say I do sit back and watch a lot too and assess the climate and assess people just to make sure I can understand an environment before I even walk in the door. That's the nature of my makeup to a degree as far as how I'm wired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to, I want to take you back to the plant again, and I want to explore a connection. Okay. So in a production facility, physical safety is of the utmost importance. And so we have safety management systems. We have occupational safety and wellness systems, and it's ongoing. It's a religion that we preach. It's an applied discipline that we try to observe every day. Safety's never done. So then if we connect that to psychological safety, feeling psychologically safe, have you seen any connection between the two? So for example, if a person is feeling more psychologically safe, then that translates into a safer physical environment. You see any connection there just based on your experience? I would say absolutely. I mean, when people don't feel psychologically safe, they are subject to strong emotion, distraction, a lack of trust, frustration. It can harm the dynamics of a team if there's conflict between the two. So maybe at that point, people are not looking out for each other as much because there's a lack of safety and some social friction. So I would say physical safety and psychological safety have a direct linkage for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you another related question. Well, we kind of talked a little bit about this. My sense of you as a personality is that you're a boundary spanning personality and that you're able to reach across demographic and psychographic differences. And that's required for your job, but my sense is that it's also something that you have great aptitude, and I don't know if we could call them gifts. How do you do that? And how do you teach others to do that? Because in your role, you're responsible, you have stewardship for people that come from all different backgrounds, all different demographics and psychographics and cultural attributes. How have you learned to do that, to connect with difference? I would say it really starts with demonstrating empathy and care. And I think you have to work hard to model the behaviors that you would like to see. And so, for example, if you're involved in an interaction and people are getting to the point of arguing and there's a lot of friction, but not necessarily the positive type of friction, Mm -hmm. somebody should call a timeout. And usually if nobody does, I'll call that timeout. What are we looking to accomplish here? How is this productive? I think it's just being willing to have the courage to stand up and say, I don't like what's going on around me. And people see that. And if you are able to model some of that vulnerability as a leader, and it changes. I mean, as I move into different levels, 
I see people looking at me differently, even though I'm still the same person, essentially. Right. So I do have to shift my approach to a degree to make people feel safe. To me, it's all about how you model behaviors, how you look to connect to people. And for me, the way I've always done it is trying to figure out what do people aspire to ultimately, right? I think if you can help somebody realize their vision for their future or help somebody identify what they may be great at, you build an amazing connection that way. And I do that pretty much everywhere. I could be in the grocery store talking to somebody, asking about their job. Do you like it? What do you think? How is management treating you? I'm, I'm asking questions like that pretty much everywhere I go and start some really good conversations that way, just checking in on people and how they're doing. And then tapping, as you said, tapping into their aspiration and their vision of their lives. Yeah. Brenda, what have you noticed that is changing the most since the pandemic began in the workplace, in the environment with the people that you're managing? What's changed? Just that awareness around mental health seems to be the biggest effect to me. And, mm-hmm. and just that the people really struggle. When you're looking at how you lead within the workplace, I know one of my goals and one of my sayings is that the world sometimes can be challenging enough. We need to make sure that we create the right type of environment in the workspace so we don't add that additional stress. I mean, I think all the external, I would say, I guess the threats, right? If you're looking at a SWOT analysis, those external threats are very concerning and they weigh heavily on the minds of many because it's different. It's coming from different areas, be it sickness, be it social justice, be it wars. There's so many different things that have been happening over the last few years. I think people are just mentally exhausted from all the news cycles and everything else that transpires. And are they talking about it more openly? Do you find that? I would say so. I mean, I think the hot topics for sure, there is probably too much discussion (laughs) that happens around those things because I think that that kind of continues to create and stimulate that. But um, I do see that people are talking about it. And what we have to get to as leaders is how do we talk about it in a healthy and constructive way? Because it is important because it's affecting people. So how do we understand what's affecting people and have those conversations in a tangible way? I've seen a lot of companies move more so towards, hey, if something happens, we need to have a statement to give a position or talk about how we feel about it as an organization. So you see a lot more of that part too, Mm -hmm. which I think that's actually good because those things affect people. And I can recall in the past, like many years ago, something crazy would happen in the media and we would just come to work and people would act like nothing happened, but you could visibly see people affected the day after a tragic event. You know what I mean? So that's a big shift. I think that was a good one because we now talk about things that are important to people more frequently. As an HR director, Brandon, it seems that you have to have quite a bit of agility and versatility in that role. You probably feel like a triage nurse some days, sometimes a grief counselor, some days a change agent. What do you relish the most? What do you like the most about your role? I would say it's the ability to have that really solid impact, right? and be what I need to be for people. So if I can understand the needs, then I can help move things forward. And I understand to do major things, you need a team effort. It takes a collective lift, right? To to move the needle forward in many ways. So I really enjoy ultimately the collaboration. So if there's a concern, I might not be the person, but I want to connect you to that resource and help you get your issue resolved or get that strategy 
ironed out fully. That's what really brings me joy is the ability to collaborate and make meaningful change. Mm -hmm. And I would say the higher the altitude, the broader the impact has always been a saying is if you can move a little higher, you can see a little bit more big picture wise. So you're able to affect change in a different way. But isn't it also true that as an HR director, sometimes you are operating at 30,000 feet at a strategic level, you're way up in your hot air balloon, but other times you're down on the ground, you're working with people in the trenches, you're one-on-one. So you're toggling back and forth. Is that how it is for you? Absolutely, because I could be in a boardroom having a conversation, learning about things, and then the next day I could be in the break room talking to hourly associates who had just come off the line and just checking on them. So the connectivity to basically be able to bring that voice into a different room where change can really happen is the major key, right? So if you understand, it goes back to the voice of the employee. If we're listening and we're understanding and we're trying to solve problems, leaders don't solve problems in isolation. Leaders solve problems when they listen to the individuals that have the feedback that can move the needle forward because we have to recognize, hey, we don't have the answers. We need to go to the source and see what is it that you want because needs have changed too. For example, in the past, overtime was probably a highly sought after situation. Yeah, always. Yeah, but now you'll find people would rather spend that time with their family. I mean, I think the quarantine and and being together has kind of created a sense of, hey, I kind of like my time sometimes with the family. That came up as a recurrent theme, so to speak. I mean, So that shift of people wanting to focus more on money, now people, I think, are more focused on time and spending time with loved ones and things of that nature. So many lives were lost. I think people's focus has shifted. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good shift. And the same things that used to motivate extrinsically don't necessarily do that anymore. You know, so you have to figure out how do you get to that intrinsic motivation and really motivate people from within? Yeah. Yeah. Another aspect of your role, let's talk about this. In many ways, I think people look at an HR director such as yourself as the conscience of the organization, as a confidant, as a trusted advisor. Even if I don't know you personally, right, Brandon, I assume that that's embedded in your role. And I assume there's assumed trust for you based on the role that you occupy Do you find that people approach you that way because you are the director of HR? You can be my confidant, you can be my trusted advisor, and that people go into a conversation or a relationship with you assuming that? Oh, I would say it depends on the personality type, right? But I would say from my perspective, my demeanor and the way that I interact with people has kind of set that stage for me. Mm-hmm. So even if I wasn't a director, I think people would confide in me and, and trust in me because they know that I'm going to have their best interests at heart. And we have those discussions where we talk about what else do we want to do? How can I push you to be more so towards your goals and to be better as far as what you would like to see for yourself? And so I do think the director title kind of gives you more exposure to different people and, and puts you in a few different places. But ultimately, you would hope it's the, it's the personality and the individual, essentially, that can help support that person and make that connection. It's amazing. My sense of you is that you're a leader that people want to work with. People want to naturally be a part of what you're doing. And so there's just a benevolence that you exude as a human being. And I, I just I want to thank you for that. Here's my last question. 
as you look into the future and you, you kind of have a, sure you do, you, you got a, a vision for the kind of organization that you're trying to build. What does that look like? And how do we come out of the pandemic and move toward that vision? The, the vision that you have in your head, tell us a little bit about what that looks like. I mean, the organization that I would see for the future is one where psychological safety has to be at the foundation of it, right? That's where, in my mind, it starts. Because once you kind of have an awareness of it and what it means, you can really start to connect and tap into people because they will be honest. They'll be vulnerable with you and share what it is they truly desire. And once you can understand their feedback, you actually can start to shape and paint the picture. And I would say, how do you work through building that roadmap to get from point A to point B? But number one, psychological safety, people being connected, collaborating, having the opportunity to innovate. You look at Industry 4.0 and what that can do and how job skills are increasing and the desire for different skill sets is coming into play. And a focus now on equipping for the future is the main idea and providing people the most meaningful work ever. There's no more room essentially for bad jobs. Those are not going to be filled. Those will be very difficult to fill in the future. So I would say just a very connected strategy where people are moving towards opportunities that are meaningful to them and they're innovating and they're creating in their space and there's no restrictions on what they can become. A lot of times People will put educational requirements on certain things. But if you can get individuals in, give them that experience, that exposure, they're hungry for it, you help set that up accurately, man, people can do incredible and amazing things. Brandon, the reason I wanted to invite you onto the podcast is that I look at you as an archetype of the HR leader of the future. I think you're one that brings the skills, the competencies, the character to the role in a remarkable way. And I thank you for that. I really do. You're an archetype of the HR leader of the future. And I appreciate all the insights um, that you've shared with us today and appreciate your time. Thank you for being with us. Hey, it's been a pleasure and it's been an honor. Greatly appreciate you. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.